This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. KYW News Radio Original Podcasts. From KYW News Radio 1039 FM, this is Bridging Philly, connecting our communities on the issues that matter to you. Presented by Gift of Life Donor Program. Organ donors save lives. Hello, I'm Raquel Williams, and welcome to Bridging Philly. Animal shelters are pretty packed with pets who are looking for homes. Costs for adoptions have been drastically reduced. We talked with the executive director of PAWS Philadelphia. We want to help all of the animals who need our help, but we can only help as many as we have space. Shara Day Howard has this week's Newsmaker. Well, I think we got a lot of groups that are doing a lot of good work, but most of them are under-resourced. We have to take good programs and allow them to be scaled up. Antoinette Lee presents our Philly Rising Changemaker of the Week. I saw the need for a preschool program to help immigrants, children that were English language learners. It's all coming up on Bridging Philly. Hello, and welcome to Bridging Philly. Are you thinking about adding a fur baby to your family? Perhaps you're thinking about surrendering your pet because the costs of everything have gone up and the costs, or rather the cuts, have uh, kind of come down to your pet. Well, it's not an easy decision to make, but, you know, situations do change and sometimes it's necessary. Well, animal shelters and organizations in our area are full to the brim with adoptables, and they are trying to make it easier for you to hang on to your pet. And if you're interested in one, the cost will be much lower than usual. Joining me today is Executive Director of PAWS, Philadelphia Animal Welfare Society, Melissa Levy. Welcome, Melissa. Thank you so much. All right. So, Melissa, according to the PSPCA, shelters are cutting adoption fees to help with the overcrowding situation. First of all, Melissa, tell us how much of a problem is this overcrowding? It's a it's a tremendous problem. The the summertime is always a very busy time for animal shelters. Um, It's when we see hundreds of kittens pouring in, in particular, people having a harder time keeping their pets, you know, through the summertime. And so it's always a challenging time for the animal welfare world. Um, But right now, it is especially difficult because um, people are being even more impacted by the economy and by, I think, the cumulative effects of COVID. They're having a really hard time making ends meet and just dealing with all of the pressures. And so the the pressure on us in the animal welfare world is even greater. So for open admission shelters, shelters that have to take every animal that lands on their doorstep, there is an absolute overcrowding problem. And then for shelters like PAWS that can only take in as many animals as we have space for, it's a different type of pressure because we want to help all of the animals who need our help but we can only help as many as we have space for. And so the urgency to find the ones that we do have loving homes to make room for the others who are waiting for those spaces is our version of that pressure that is being felt by the whole system right now. Yeah. You mentioned COVID. I'm wondering, you know, did you see an influx of people giving up their pets during the height of COVID? What we saw was people struggling 
to care for their pets um, because of all of the other pressures in their lives. And so in a city like Philadelphia, where so many people are not living with the resources that they need, you know, if there's a family member that they need to care for, if they lose their job, if they, you know, are having other pressures in their lives, you know, it's compounded by, or sometimes, you know, the element of their family that kind of, you know, that they feel that they have to consider, you know, relieving some of that pressure on as their pets. And so coming to us or to other organizations in the city for support is such an important part of, you know, of pet ownership being knowing that that help is available. But we certainly did see during the pandemic, people who were just really struggling and being there for them to provide food, to provide veterinary care, to provide just whatever guidance and support we could so that those bonds remained intact was really important. And we're actually seeing more of that now, kind of the built up effects of the pandemic than we even did during the height of the pandemic. Um, so we're seeing things sort of finally start to, to add up for folks and bring them to the point where they just feel like they can't manage any longer. Right. Tell me more about that. So PAWS actually helps uh, people with pets if they're struggling. You kind of help them out uh, with, with the different vet needs and food. How does that work? So for us, approaching the the problem of animals in shelters and of pet homelessness um, is every bit as much about rescuing and finding homes for those animals as it is about supporting pet owners in the community so that those pets don't end up in shelters in the first place. And when we started many years ago, that effort was really focused on spay-neuter because there just wasn't enough available, affordable spay-neuter to prevent all of the hundreds and thousands of litters that were being born in the city um, and just very basic vet care. And over the years, it has really grown um, to provide a much, we've grown to provide a much wider range of veterinary services for people who really can't afford to access that vital care elsewhere. Um, And during the pandemic, we added even additional layers onto that pet support, you know, family of services. So we began providing pet food pantry um, services, whether it was home deliveries or events that people could come to, working with um, human service agencies who hold human food pet human food pantries, um, and coupling that with pet food and supplies, because so many families and people who depend on pet on food pantries for themselves have pets at home who are struggling mm-hmm. too. We were seeing people give that food to their pets so that their pets wouldn't go hungry. Um, but people need all sorts of additional types of service. They might need temporary housing while they're going through a period of transition. They might need guidance on behavior if their dog is, you know, pulling too much on the leash or, Hmm. um, you know, showing signs of anxiety or their cat isn't using the litter box, things that shouldn't require a person to say goodbye to their pet that are fixable. We want to try to be there for them so that those animals don't end up in shelters and so that those people don't end up heartbroken Um, by having to part with pets who really, you know, who are really important members of the family. 
It's great to know that you offer that service. I didn't even know that that was offered. So it's great uh, that that's available for people who might be struggling. Uh, at least they know that uh, there is a place to turn, at least uh, initially, to try to, you know, while you're getting back on your feet, so to speak. On average, how many pets do you normally have for, for adoption? I know you say summertime is normally busy no matter what. Uh, what do you mm-hmm. how, how many animals do you normally have? So, for example, in our system right now, we ha- and this is a this is a typical number. We typically have about 400 animals in our care. Um, not all of them are quite ready to be adopted. So, some of them might be going through treatment for a disease, or they might be um, recovering from an injury. There, many of them are kittens who aren't old enough to be adopted yet. Mm-hmm. Um, so, at any given point, we have you know, about 400 animals that we're caring for. And of those, I would say probably a third to a half are available for adoption. They're either in one of our facilities, our adoption center or our shelter, or they are in a foster home where they're living temporarily until they find their forever family. Right, right. Now, I know there are some shelters that, you know, animals have a certain amount of time Uh, If they don't get adopted, you know, they have to, you know, consider alternative, uh, you know, methods. And I know that PAWS is a no-kill shelter. So obviously you guys need lots of help. The dogs, if if they don't get adopted, you you just keep them and take care of them, correct? We do. Yep. Once we make a commitment to an animal, we keep that commitment for as long as it takes to find them a great home. Um, And so for some animals, that literally could be a couple of days. For other animals, it could be months and months and months mm-hmm. um, through no fault of their own. You know, some animals are have really complicated um, medical concerns that we need to sort out and treat until they, you know, to sort of get them to a point where they can be adopted. Mm-hmm. Um, and some animals just have very particular needs um, behaviorally or just in terms of the setting where they're really going to be happiest and flourish. And sometimes that takes quite a while to find. Yeah, we don't put time limits on any animals. We approach every animal as an individual, and it's really just a matter of giving them what they need and then finding them a home that is really well suited to them and vice versa. And then, of course, there are animals that have special needs and, you know, they're adoptable as well. But, you know, I guess the person who adopts that particular animal has to know exactly how to take care of that particular animal and what they need and be willing to go that extra mile for the animal, right? Absolutely. It can be a big commitment um, in those cases and it can, you know, come with expenses and we try to be there in every way that we can to provide, you know, what we're able to provide to to ease that burden. But yeah, I mean, for some animals, um, they may have lifelong medical issues. They mm-hmm. may have other limitations or, or special needs that require a special home. Some of our dogs, for example, are seniors. They can't live in a row home with multiple flights of steps or, you know, they don't get along with other dogs. So um, they need to live in a home where they're not going to be constantly bombarded by the sounds of other dogs, which is hard in the city. And so it can be tricky to find just the right spot, which is why some some animals stay with us a little bit longer, but it's a worthy process. (laughs) And when Mm -hmm. they finally do find the person or the family that they were meant for, it's such a beautiful thing. When it comes to uh, adopting uh, a dog and making that decision to add a fur baby to your family, um, (laughs) sometimes that decision is 
well, it can be, you know, kind of off the cuff, like, oh, this animal is cute, or, you know, a kid in the home may want a pet. What are some things that people really need to consider before, you know, making that leap to adopt a pet? You know, they're thinking everything is cute and it's all cute and cuddly at first. Everything is wonderful. But, you know, these are lives that you're taking care of at the end of the day. Yeah. Interestingly, the research shows that when people make an impulsive decision to adopt a pet, um, those adoptions are just as likely to be lifelong and successful as someone who labors over the decision for weeks or months. Um, so it's not necessarily the impulsiveness or the, you know, the quickness of the decision. In our view, it's about the match. It's about really understanding the animal and understanding the adopter or the family life, the home situation, and and making a good fit. So um, certainly we want to make sure that people are ready to make a lifelong commitment to a pet. And for you know a cat, that could be, if you're lucky, 16, 18, 20 years. You know, for a dog, not quite as long, but you know, we've had some really amazing long lives to celebrate that we've seen. So certainly there's that just the idea that you're adding a family member that's going to be with you hopefully for a very long time. So baseline, that's, you know, make, being ready to make that commitment is important. The other piece of it, there's certainly the financial piece. Veterinary care can be expensive. Unforeseen things can happen. You know, we talk about considering pet insurance and making sure to feed your pet a really nutritious diet. So they're likely to be healthy and to have what they need to, you know, make sure that they're sort of protected against some of the the things that that can that can happen. Mm-hmm. But I think for us, the process is more about getting to know each other. So it's if you have an active home with a lot going on, you have children, you have other pets, you're coming and going. You know, we want to match you with a pet that's likely to fit into that environment well. We don't want a pet that is shy or that just wants one-on-one quiet time with one person. Um, vice versa, if you are, you know, a homebody and sort of a couch potato, we don't want to match you with a dog, for example, that's going to need an hour and a half's worth of activity outside right. to, you know, be happy. Right, right. <laughs> so it's those kinds of things. It's getting to know everyone um, and then really helping to 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 play that matchmaker role so that everyone is set up for success. It's a relationship. Like no any other relationship, you have to make sure that, you know, you're you have the right match. That makes complete sense. Absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> it's knowing yourself yeah. so that you can, you know, enter into a successful relationship. <laughs> right. <laughs> exactly. Now so, you- and then, you know, I think the other piece of it I would just add is is you, you, we can't predict everything. So we don't know, um, you know, how an animal might adjust to a new home or a new environment, new personalities. And for people, it's a learning process too. You know, you learn how to read your, your pet's behavior and you might know not know all the training techniques that we might be able to share with you that, you know, sometimes take time and patience to really try out and, Um, see results from. Mm -hmm. But it's an investment that I think when people make, when people make it, it's so rewarding. And it really builds that foundation for the rest of your lives together. Um, But sometimes it's about reaching out for that support Mm -hmm. and troubleshooting along the way, you know, during those initial weeks and months where everybody's getting to know each other. 
Well, you did mention cost uh, very briefly. We're talking about veterinary costs. There are lots of things to consider. Um, but if you don't, you, if you want to make sure that you hang on to your pet and, and, and cost does not, uh, you know, become burdensome, there are some things that you should consider. So let's let's kind of put together kind of a budget. What are some things that you have to consider before you adopt a pet? What are some of the costs that you really need to consider as far as your monthly costs so that you can successfully have this relationship with your pet? So it's a great question. Um, and I think one of the things that um, PAWS and PSPCA and other organizations, other um, other veterinary practices in the city are really thinking about and really dedicated to is bringing that cost down and making it affordable because we don't want the message to be that if you don't earn a certain amount of money, you shouldn't have a pet. You can't have a pet because pets are so important to everyone. And so we want to make, you know, having access to that vet care possible for everybody. Um, With that said, it does come at a cost either for the organization that's providing it or for the person who is trying to afford it or both, you know, baseline, we encourage adopters to think about at least having a an you know an annual visit with a veterinarian to make sure that their animal has sort of a full wellness check um, so that any issues that are cropping up can be identified sooner rather than later the earlier just like with us the earlier you identify a health problem the easier it is to treat it most of the time mm-hmm. um, to make sure that they're current on vaccinations and on any other preventive care flea and tick prevention though parasite prevention those kinds of things that are much easier to prevent than they are to treat afterward um, for everyone involved. So that doesn't have to be super expensive for us. An office visit, you know, can cost $25 and flea treatment can cost $7 and medication for, you know, treatable, ease of common conditions can be five, 10, $20. It's mm-hmm. not, that certainly can be a budgetary consideration for some people and, Um, So it is something to think about the cost of food and litter and toys, the things that animals need to be safe and healthy and engaged. They do have a cost, although there are certainly affordable options for all of those things as well. So rather than sort of ask people to identify a set monthly budget, we ask them to think about these things and where they might be able to access more affordable care or to save a few dollars each month. So that if something does come up that's unforeseen, you have, you know, a little bit set aside for for that eventuality. What about fostering? uh, Mm -hmm. It's a lot different than adoption. Talk about fostering and how that can help uh, shelters as well. Fostering is essential. Um, We are only, when I say we have 400 animals in our system, those aren't 400 animals in our building. So those are 400 paws animals and hundreds of them are in foster homes. So foster parents enable us to save more lives. They enable all shelters to save more lives because when you take an animal into your home temporarily, you're making space in the shelter for another one whose life depends on it. And so, um, and that's not where, that's not where the benefit ends. Um, Certainly animals prefer to be in a home than in a shelter and as shelter staff, we prefer animals to be in a home because that's where we can get to know them better. That's where we hear from foster parents what their 
routines are, their personalities, their tendencies, their needs, et cetera, which then enables us to make a better match than if we were just observing them in a kennel in our shelter. So there are so many benefits. And from the foster's perspective, it is incredibly rewarding. Um, It can be challenging. Certainly, it can be a time commitment. It can be an energy commitment. Um, But the satisfaction that you get bringing an animal into your life, caring for it, and then helping it find its forever family. We have fosters who have literally fostered hundreds, if not thousands of animals over the years because Mm -hmm. it is such a fulfilling experience. And um, there are certainly challenging moments along the way, but the 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 overall role that you play in life saving and changing these lives is tremendous. Well, I can imagine uh, building a connection though with the foster dog and not wanting to, you know, give give <laughs> we the, affectionately yeah. call those foster fails. Sometimes <laughs> that happens, and that's okay too. And they um, become the for, the forever homes there. Sometimes. Exactly. So let's talk a little bit more about um, things you should consider. I'm thinking about kids um, again, and we were touching mm-hmm. on kids before. Um, when it comes to kids and pets, especially dogs, let's talk about dogs for a minute. Um, I know there are certain breeds that are better with kids, um, and there are certain things that kids need to be taught when it comes to uh, having a pet for the first time in the home. What is, what's mm-hmm. some advice that you give to potential foster families and or adopt, adopted families uh, about mm-hmm. kids in the home with pets? Mm-hmm. So we try not to generalize too much about breeds because that tends to be sort of a label that gets placed on a dog mm-hmm. that individual animals personality may not line up with that with what we think of when we think of that type of dog. Okay. So rather than talk about breeds, but getting to know an individual animal's personality, um, what do we know about their past? What can we observe about their behavior in the present? Um, and, you know, if it's a dog that, um, and I would include cats in this too. There are some cats who absolutely love playing with children and having kids around. And there are others who make it very clear that they want to lay on a windowsill and not you know, have that element in their right, life. Right, right. So they're, you know, <laughs> kittens are um, are kind of in a class by themselves because they're kind of up for anything. They're right. very playful and very much like children in that way. So um, so I think when it comes to dogs, we, we want to certainly make sure that the dog has a personality that can meld well with children in the house so that they know to be a little bit more gentle around kids mm-hmm. to sort of control their energy around them. And um, some are just, you know, big sort of barrels of fun and they don't quite know how big and strong they are and they might not mean it, but they might just be a little bit too much for a, a, a kid that's sort of their size. Right, right, right. <laughs> um, they might be better suited, you know, to some older kids in the house. So it, it really is about finding that that fit. I think from the parent's perspective, from the kid's perspective, it's equally important to know how to approach a dog, you know, so that you don't scare it. And so that you're not sticking your hand, you know, a child knows not to stick its hand in the, you know, dog's bowl while it's trying to eat and not trying to take a toy away from it if we're not sure how it's going to react to that. You know, there are things to be mindful of and ways to set everybody up for success. I think certainly just as a baseline, encouraging parents to always be kind of with 
at least at the beginning, mm-hmm. until you know how everybody's going to be together, you know, to make sure that they're watching those interactions and making sure that they're that their children understand how to best just approach and interact with a dog, how to what what is playful and what might be kind of you know upsetting to a dog or mm-hmm. you know that until you quite know how the dog is going to react. It's a learning process for everybody. <laughs> well, I can appreciate what you said about um, not having to pinpoint any particular breed for kids or not for kids, because, you know, I have met some or come across some dogs that are considered to be aggressive types that were just super sweet. And, you know, I really guess it depends on how the dog was brought up, you know, how the Absolutely. dog, yeah, with the, the breeder, so to speak, or the how, who, who brought the dog up. Because I'm like, wow, this dog, I heard these dogs were aggressive and mean with kids, but this one is just so sweet. So I guess they're all individual and it depends on their, their background. So that's, that's a good point. Yeah. Yep. I was and looking, the truth mm-hmm. is, you know, with many dogs, you can look at them and think that you know what breed they are. Um, but those, those breed labels are just that they're labels based on how a dog appears physically. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's how, you know, that's how people, they sort of size up a dog and say, oh, that's a whatever. Right. You don't actually know until you, you know, test it. And then you don't know how reliable the test is, but really at the end of the day, um, what science has told us is that breed labels do not correlate with personality. Uh-huh. I think, you know, people sort of like to feel like they can, you know, like they can sort of know what boxes to put, you know, to put dogs in and how to think about them. But if you get to know individual dogs, they will surprise you for the better, Mm -hmm. most often, almost every time. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I was looking at your page and oh my goodness, so many adorable adoptables on that page. Uh, I wonder if you wanted to just spotlight a couple of them, maybe a cat and a dog, and talk about uh, a couple of them that are up for adoption that are looking for forever homes. Yeah, absolutely. Um, So um, on our website, um, uh, phillypaws.org, we list all of our dogs and cats that are up for adoption, but we also have a special page called Urgent Animals. Um, where we really want to highlight the dogs and cats who um, we're most concerned about find, uh, finding a home sooner rather than later. Um, for dogs, usually those are dogs who are in our kennels um, at our Grays Ferry location um, that just really will thrive in a family environment and are really stressed out having to live in a kennel all day, every day. They get out, they get, you know, they play with staff and volunteers, but it's not like living in a home. Um, And so um, on our urgence page right now, um, Finnegan is one of them. Um, He is um, a staff and volunteer favorite. Um, We actually just had him out for a really fun photo shoot. Mm -hmm. Um, So you'll see him in front of a mini love statue um, from Franklin Square Park, which Mm -hmm. is great. Um, So he was a stray. Um, he's one to two years old. He is um, really just fun loving and adventurous. He's an energetic, playful, sweet young dog who needs to live in the, the routine of a, of a, of a home mm-hmm. with a person who he can connect with and count on to really become you know, an amazing family member. Um, he's showing all of those signs, but um, he's you know he's not living 
the life that he deserves to live um, and that we, you know, are determined to find for him. So he's, he's been in our shelter too long. Um, we'd love to find him a home. So, so he's one, um, one great example. Um, and then um, for cats, so we have, and there are three other dogs listed on our urgence page. So I would love to give a shout out to Lola um, is at our Grace Ferry Clinic as well. Um, kind of a, a similar situation. She's, you know, a bundle of energy. She's super playful. She's super affectionate. Um, her owner had to part with her because they just didn't have time to give her what she needed. Um, and so, um, you know, she really needs an environment where she doesn't have the stressors of city life, um, hmm. all the exposure to noise and other animals. And, um, you know, she needs to kind of decompress. And, um, and so, you know, shelter life is not, not ideal for her or any dog. So we would love to find her a great home. And then there's, um, actually a mother and son dog, um, <laughs> at our Grace Ferry <laughs> shelter. Um, their names, the mom is Bella Tubby and the, the son is Daniel. Um, they are really attached to each other, sweet as can be. Um, but we don't want to break them up. Okay. And so finding a home that is ready to welcome them both in, um, you know, is a tall order, but we are determined to make that happen. And we know that they're out there. They just haven't, uh, we just haven't found them yet. Got it. So, um, and then there are three examples of cats, um, in our care right now who are kind of, we consider most urgent. Um, their names are Petunia, Farah. And Penny, um, they are in they are each in foster homes, um, and they're great examples for various reasons of cats who, whether due to age or um, medical status, just need a little bit of a special setting where they can just live their best life and get mm -hmm. the love and the peace and quiet and the nurturing that they deserve. Um, so we have um, really great sort of descriptions of each of them that tell their stories and help you get to know them. And, um, and once those cats find their homes, their fosters are likely to come back to us and take another cat who needs that experience mm -hmm. and then give us the chance to rescue another cat in their place. So um, that we gotta, we gotta keep that, mm -hmm. that whole process <laughs> gotcha. moving along. Gotcha. Gotcha. Wow, I wasn't aware of all of the work that PAWS uh, does, and I'm so very impressed. And it is so much work, and it's important work, too. How can people support the work that you guys do? Thank you for asking that. Um, we are 100% donor-funded. Um, all of the animals that we rescue depend on um, the generosity of people in the community who want to help us do our work. So um, certainly supporting us with a donation um, is is an important way to um, make sure that we're ready to take in the next animal who needs us. Um, certainly please come forward and adopt if any animals leap off the page, leap off the screen mm -hmm. and tug at your heart, um, open your home to them because every time an adopter comes along, it allows us to rescue another animal waiting for that space. Same thing with fostering um, and volunteers really help make our world go round. So um, volunteers support every aspect. We have a tremendous staff um, that work seven days a week in all three of our facilities, but they are supported also seven days a week by incredible volunteers. So if you're moved to help care for the animals, help promote the animals, help 
answer phones, return voicemails, you know, um, any number of things, uh, distribute food and go out into the community and join us at events to spread the word. There are so many ways for volunteers to get involved. Um, and just like fostering, it's it's a way to make a real tangible difference in, in animals' lives. Um, so we encourage folks to join us any which way or in multiple ways that right. they might be moved to do that. Well, all you have to do is log on to uh, phillypaws.org and look at all the cuties there. Look at Finnegan and all of his friends and <laughs> and see if uh, one of those uh, one of those little cute faces there uh, tugs at your heartstrings like it did with mine. So I don't know. <laughs> I mean, you know, it might be time again for a new dog for me, but uh, we'll see. Uh, in the meantime, thank you so much to Melissa Levy, Executive Director of Paws Philadelphia Animal Welfare Society. Thanks for joining us today on Bridging Philly. Thanks so much. Everyday people across our region are making news, but they may not get the recognition they deserve. Sharaday Howard sits down this week with our newsmaker. As Philadelphia continues to struggle through a steady rise in street violence, community leaders like Pennsylvania State Senator Sharif Street, representative of the 3rd District, are laser-focused on empowering the communities with what he refers to as a person-to-person approach. Welcome to Bridging Philly, Senator Street. Thank you. Now, a lot of the work you've been doing has been an attempt to try to alleviate some of the pressures of not only street violence, but what you say are underlying factors. Well, look, I think there are a number of programs that we've uh, advanced. Um, One of the ones that I'm I'm really proud of was one I worked on with uh, my colleague, uh, Senator Nikhil Saval, the Whole Home Program, which was a program created to uh, fund, fully fund uh, the repair of houses. But specifically, while that, while we're getting, while the state's getting that program up and running, we uh, worked on a water heater emergency fund with the uh, Energy Coordinating Agency. Um, And uh, that program would provide uh, water heaters uh, for people's houses. And we actually kicked off that program uh, within the last couple of weeks. The whole home program would provide up to $50,000 to repair, to do uh, the complete home repairs. Sometimes somebody will come in and maybe they'll fix the electricity, but there's a problem with the roof. It's sort of an enhancement of what the basic systems repair program the city used to have, but only with expanded caps and a much more comprehensive approach. We we were putting together a WealthCon event in the fall focused on driving financial literacy. And then we've done a number of events around food insecurity. We give out around Thanksgiving time about uh, 5,000 turkeys. It varies depending on the availability of turkeys, but it's three to 5,000 turkeys each year. On top of that, we um, we give out about uh, during a uh, Month of Ramadan, we gave about 6,000 meals in a partnership with Phil Abundance. We partnered with, for the turkeys, with um, a number of community groups, but our lead partner is the Nice Town CDC. And you're really thinking outside of the box. Can you give us a couple examples? We have, we've uh, advanced an urban agriculture program, and I was the lead sponsor of the creation of that in the first Pennsylvania Farm Bill. And there have been 93 community projects that have funded since 2019. And that's important because some people are growing uh, a diversity of vegetables that they may not otherwise have because Fresh fruits and vegetables are sometimes the things that go first um, when people are poor. They just because it's it can be some of the most expensive things on your grocery list. Now, the work that you're doing with regard to food insecurity, Philadelphia has a real problem here when it comes to not just poverty but food insecurity. You're trying to attack that at the core with a lot of your programs, of course, with the farming, but so much more. And you've been partnering with. 
fill abundance. Please tell us about that. We had the program where we uh, gave out 6,000 meals, 200 meals a day uh, for the entire month of Ramadan. Because during COVID, when a lot of Muslims weren't fasting, some of the medical challenges with it, they were, in, in lieu of fasting, were feeding others. And we found there was just this tremendous impact on people getting food and addressing food insecurity. So we thought, what a great way to um, celebrate that holiday each year working. Uh, and like we do things with many other holidays, we thought this was a good program and we partnered with Phil Abundance. We get a number of sponsors, including Brown ShopRite and CBS Aetna and others. And look, we, for 30 days, consecutive days, we uh, distribute 200 meals to anyone who wants or needs them. Now, what are you doing in the summer to help these families, to help these kids? Because like you said, poverty and food insecurity really are underlying factors to the street violence and the increase in gun violence that we're seeing. One of the things that happens in summer is you have a spike in violence. So there are a number of community groups we work with to try and uh, address the social determinants of violence. Um, from conflict resolution to sort of emotional intelligence and ameliorating challenges that people uh, face that give rise to violence, sort of uh, pre-responders, if you will. A number of these groups are are underfunded. And so we've advanced um, legislation to help dramatically enhance the funding. Uh, This year, the Commonwealth adopted a budget with $105 million for these groups and $290 million for violence prevention programs. So that's something that's really important. There are a bunch of groups, whether it's NOMO, uh, Mothers in Charge, Amir, that are all doing EFILI, that are all doing work um, around violence prevention. And then there are groups like One Day at a Time, ODET, um, uh, Stop and Surrender, and other groups that are doing work that traditionally focused on uh, drug and alcohol uh, recovery. But part of that, because people have many challenges, are also, they also are doing violence prevention work. We see upticks in so much of this during the summertime. Um, and so a lot of these community uh, outreach uh, uh, efforts are, are really focused on stemming the uh, upticks that we annually see in violence every summer. So let's talk about that overlap between poverty and an increase in violence. These things are connected. Well, absolutely. Um, when you look at the, the, the highest correlation um, between violence and where you're going to find it is where there's poverty. Um, and, and why? Because look at, you know, a lot of this happens because of uh, the, the number one cause, um, immediate, the immediate precipitating factor um, in a shooting um, uh, is, is an argument. Arguments that occur between people who usually know one another, but who are, and, they, and it's much more likely for those arguments to escalate to violence in areas where there is significant poverty, because of all the stresses. If you're hungry, you're trying to figure out how to feed your family, there's stress associated with that. If you don't know how you're going to pay your next bills, there's stress associated with that. Um, and so um, when you deal with the food insecurity, you relieve some of the pressure on people, and that addresses violence. When you deal with the poverty issues that undergird it, you're dealing with both reductions in violence and reductions in food insecurity. Uh, the two are related, um, as are correlated, um, are correlated to so many other the social determinants of violence. And, but the biggest social determinants of violence is um, is concentrated poverty. Now, you've taken on some partners in this effort to not only build and empower the community, but to really have a hands-on approach. You are close friends with Cindy Bass and Darisha Parker. Can you talk about that a bit? Yeah, so it's, it's been great. Um, one, Cindy, Darisha, and I have known each other for over two decades, uh, long before any of us were elected officials. Uh, two, we represent many of the same people. 
Um, and what I found is people don't people want their problems solved. And Cindy and I literally set up district offices across the street from one another because people don't want to hear if they've got a problem that's a city problem. We can't help you, you know, go figure it out yourself or if you've got a state problem. So, um, you know, it's real simple to say, just walk across the street and we'll, and we'll tell them you're coming or vice versa. Um, Darisha is uh, similarly been just really committed to these issues. And so because we can pool resources, we can bring greater state resources uh, to challenges. But often, for instance, if there's a rec center, it needs to be fixed up and the councilwoman has rebuild money and she's conducting community, community meetings with the Recreation Department, the City Planning Commission. A lot of times if we have state legislative grants through RCAP or other programs, RCAP is the Redevelopment Assistance Capital Program dollars, we can go a lot further if we're partnering with the city officials on it. Um, if you look at stuff like planning for neighborhood corridors and, 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 and getting small businesses and creating job creation, it works better if you have city and state cooperation. And so it helps that we have a personal friendship, but what's most important is we have a shared mission uh, to serve uh, the people that uh, we were all elected to serve. And they want us to work together and they want us to forget whose office did more in terms of getting credit how do we work together to make sure the community wins? And when they win, they're happy with all of us. Now, you all have similar approaches, but also different. We do. We'll be walking through a community. We've all each got our own style, but you're right. We have no problem. We've done so many neighborhood tours together, the three of us. And you'll find uh, Representative Parker, will, she, she's good at grabbing somebody who looks like they're not paying attention. And her sort of, especially if it's a younger person in a motherly way, say, hey, what's going on? What's going on with you? I need I need to hear what you're talking about. And a person will you know, you represent, you don't understand, um, maybe it's a young brother, you know, what it's like to be a black man. I mean, when Senator Street's a black man, we want to hear, well, let's talk to him. And sometimes it's almost like we're, we're being um, um, sort of in a parental way, reaching out to some of these young adults because we're all, you know, getting a little bit older. And if it's a person our own age, it's sort of a, hey, what's going on? And they'll say, we know it's hard out here. And we'll talk to them like uh, from a peer conversation. And if it's our seniors, sometimes reaching out to them and say, and from a perspective like, well, we're the children in the support network that young people or when people get older, they rely on. But we walk out, we talk to each other. We have a, a very complimenting styles. Councilwoman um, Bass, she has a smooth, calming presence in many cases, but at the same time can be very authoritative in, in her uh, things. People understand she's an authority. Councilwoman um, Parker gets people to open up and start talking. And a lot of times I was a little a bit of, of, a, of a wonky policy guy when they ask specific questions about numbers and this and government services. I can uh, rattle a lot of those off off the top of my head. But when the three of us work together, there really is a, a certain synergy where I think none of us will be as effective individually as we all are collectively. And together, you guys are all on the ground really trying to address this gun violence, and you're doing it from generation to generation. Can you tell us more? So we've done some marches. Um, we've done uh, community meetings where, where people talk about the problems they're facing. We get people, we've had people who, who, we used to be involved in crime, but are older and turn their lives around and who maybe had a bit involved in gun violence and talk to young people about how it didn't work out well for them or how they would have done things differently. Um, when we get out there and you engage people where they are and you hear their frustrations, sometimes you can stop things from happening. And sometimes you get out there and you'll hear about problems that people are know are sort of, uh, pardon the expression, percolating in the community. Everybody's like, well, this group is mad at that group. Maybe let's talk to both sides and see how we can calm it down or figure out what groups are doing that and get them some of the resources. Maybe you got two groups of guys who are um, 
upset and they're on the corners and they're not focused. Let's get them. You get them in job training programs. They're not worried much about, you know, uh, what's going on out on the streets. So, but you can't do that if you don't get out and engage with people where they are. I and mean, sometimes it starts with a community march and it ends up with a community meeting to address some of the more structural issues that people have. But you got to do all of it. Sometimes you got to get a pastor involved or an imam, depending on the community, because um, our faith leaders can play a, a role. Maybe it's somebody who runs a youth basketball league or football league uh, or cheerleading program. And if they can expand capacity, some of the kids um, who they can get some of these people involved or they know the young people and they have a different rapport with them and they can talk to them, you know, hey, that kid is going to uh, wants to get into something with that kid over there. But he plays for coach such and such. Maybe if you get the coach to come out and talk to them, this won't happen. And that can come out in a community march or a meeting uh, where we can reach out to the coach. Coach, did you know one of your students, one of your athletes is going to do this? Can you reach out and talk to them? Those things come out when we do these community engagement events. And people will tell you a lot more one-on-one than they're ever going to call in the office or send in an email or text. So between the funding and all the structural changes and improvements that are needed, I need you to unpack this a little bit and tell us where the money is, where it needs to go, and how it's going to get there. Well, I think we got a lot of groups that are doing a lot of good work, um, and but most of them are under-resourced. We have to take good programs and allow them to be scaled up. A person who maybe is it has a mentoring program, but they really only have resources and space to mentor 10 kids with, who would mentor 50 uh, and because they, uh, if they had space for the volunteers and additional kids, we can help them get space with, with money. Uh, a, a little league football team that maybe is only running, you know, one that, that only is servicing uh, 100 kids, which could service 200 if they could afford additional uniforms or if there were more field space for kids, because sometimes you have more kids than you have field space. You have coaches, you have kids, but there, I've talked with folks in, uh, with the city and there's not often appropriate enough recreational space for those programs to take place. Cheerleading groups that have large numbers of girls that want to participate in cheer competitions, but don't have the money for the entrance fees associated with that. Resources can uh, deal with that. Compute people who want to teach kids how to do uh, gaming and things on computers, but the kids don't have access to the technology to get engaged. And, the, and maybe the person who's doing it only has access to 10 computers. And if we got them 50, they could have run the same program and have 50 kids engaged in it. Um, and then there are things that are more creative, that are a little bit more ambitious. There are a lot of young people who are really interested in motorsports and, and, and sort of BMX biking and things like that. A lot of times they're doing it in the neighborhood in a disruptive way. Ultimately, it would be good if we could build facilities for them to do that stuff in a more constructive way. Um, but that, that requires planning and resources. So whether it's just getting a person who's running a mentoring program, some additional space or somebody who's running computer classes, additional computers, or maybe it's the community violence interrupter who can teach other people and get other people engaged, but is doing this after work because that guy is, you know, working a shift as a janitor or working another job at a restaurant and would like to do this full time if we could pay or create a, a space for him to do it full time, but has to feed his family. So um, that person could do a lot more if we could create a full time opportunity for those folks. Those are the kinds of things that resources can help with. Um, but ultimately, it's, a, it's empowering people who are already committed to doing the work and getting them the, the resources to scale it up. Thank you so much for being here, Senator Street. Thank you so much for doing this. Appreciate your being a voice for uh, people in the community.
At Devereaux Advanced Behavioral Health, we exist to change lives by unlocking and nurturing human potential for people living with emotional, behavioral, or cognitive differences. We were founded in 1912 by a special education teacher in South Philadelphia, and since then, we've been treating the most vulnerable members of the population in the same way we would treat our own families. To learn more about our evidence-based, trauma-focused care for children, adolescents, and adults, visit Devereaux.org. The Philly Rising Changemaker of the Week. Presented by Devereaux Advanced Behavioral Health. I'm KYW's Antoinette Lee here with this week's Philly Rising Changemaker. This week, we're proud to shine a light on Carol Wong. She's certainly been a game changer in all of the above in the Chinatown community for more than three decades. Miss Wong is bridging Philly by providing immigrant and Asian American communities with education and support they need to thrive. Here's more. For those who are not familiar with the Chinatown Learning Center, tell us what you do and how long you've been operating. Well, I started the school back in 1993, so we just celebrated 29th anniversary. It's a bilingual preschool and a bilingual after-school program. And right now, we're navigating the pandemic period right now the best we could. (laughs) I moved to Philadelphia in 1980. I saw the need for a preschool program to help immigrants, children with English that were English language learners. They were smart, but because of the language barrier, they just didn't grasp some of the skills that they needed to go on to kindergarten. There was still such a need for children to navigate and parents to navigate the educational system because it was so different from China or wherever they came from. But it was the main thing was to give them the skills, the confidence and you know, promotes positive self-esteem for the kids. So no matter where they went to school or what they did in the future, I wanted to lay that positive foundation for them. You know, a lot of times immigrants are very shy and withdrawn because they are afraid, oh, maybe I'm not saying it right or I don't know how to say it. So we work on those skills. And um, actually, you know, it's not just educating the children. It was really supporting and helping the parents to know what to do, how to do it, and to know that we're there to support them. You know, it's just so important. We can't do it all and they can't do it all. It's like the saying is it does take a village, but the village has to start somewhere. And preschool education is just so important for kids. It sounds like you sort of always had, you know, a passion for for children and, and education. Where do you think that stems from? As a young kindergartner, uh, I went to school and only knew five English words. Even though I was born in America, my mom, I was at home with my mom. So we only spoke Chinese. So I knew what it was like to go to school and not know how to communicate. And I'm very fortunate. I knew I wanted to be a teacher since I was six years old. Loved my teachers. My, In fact, I vividly remember my kindergarten teacher. She was my first teacher. She didn't have the bilingual ESL, all that background, but she loved what she did. And it didn't matter that I couldn't speak English. And I was the only person of color in her class, probably the first. (laughs) And she just, you know, loved what she did. And then I remember her so well and all my teachers, I could tell you the name of every teacher I ever had. Um, So I just realized it's at age six, at the end of first grade that I wanted, that's what I wanted to do, be a teacher. You mentioned that you have had to become a sort of support for the parents as well. And I know that the past couple of years have been challenging over this pandemic. What kind of challenges have you noticed 
in the people that you serve and how have you helped them through those challenges? Yeah, there's so many. First, we have a lot of families that lost their jobs just because of the pandemic. Businesses closed, things just stopped working, factories just stopped. It was just really hard on the parents. So we did virtual classes. You know, it it wasn't the whole day, but it was something. And also, I felt that the parents that were home with the children, because they had to sit with them at the computer, which sometimes is not the easiest thing. Um, And I felt that it also taught the parents how to communicate with their children, how they can at home work on some of the skills or some of the way we talk to the children, some of the books that we presented to them. Another thing, we sent free books home to all the families every month. Then we would read to them, tell them what different things they could do with them. And just to really encourage them uh, to, you know, start their library and really utilize it and how to utilize it. You can give somebody a book, but they don't know what to do with it. And two, we, we did try to get some bilingual books. So it was also in Chinese, but because we read to the kids or the kids were familiar with the books, they were able just to tell the parents what the story was about. Because it doesn't have to be one way. It could be the kids telling uh, mom and dad or grandma and grandpa about the picture. So it really starts that communication and that dialogue and language development. And I think the last two and a half years, that's where it really hit the hardest. Besides the social emotional skills and not being with other children, just the the language development. If, If there's not too many people around to talk to, you're just not going to develop that vocabulary that you normally would. Um, we also gave out uh, food to pa- boxes of food to parents that, that needed the food. We would arrange uh, like pickups, uh, no contact pickups. Um, and then we also gave bags of supplies, uh, educational materials. We have a partnership with the Philadelphia School District. So we have a Head Start program. So we were able to do a lot of um, extra things to support the parents. And then also we kept in touch with the parents weekly. And I think it just help make it a little bit easier. I mean, it wasn't easy for anybody, but I I think for a lot of parents that lost their jobs or they still had to work, even though the pandemic was going on, and then just the fear of coming home with maybe having the virus and passing it on. So trying to comfort them and giving them support. How essential is childcare? How important is it for these families? What happens if you don't open? It's, It's tough. They... Some of them have uh, elders that live with them, that take care of them. But, you know, preschool is not babysitting. It is providing an, a positive environment, educationally, socially, and getting them ready for kindergarten. And if they have no experience or that opportunity to grow and learn in a edu- high-quality educational environment, they're going to be so behind. And then what happens when they get behind, it just gets worse. And then, you know, a lot of times parents don't realize that we spend a lot of time educating parents on why preschool education is so important. Because sometimes because they're, they're not knowledgeable about that, they'll think, oh, somebody's at home, they can watch them. And two, maybe they can't afford it. That's another issue that we could talk for hours on that um, funding, but they don't understand that it's, it's while that child is going through those stages, how important it is for them to have these educational opportunities and experience with kid, you know, other children, with other adults other than mom and dad. That's a big one. How can you tell that all of this work is making a difference in lives? 
I see the different programs that are available to the families now, uh, whether it's learning English, um, understanding why it's important to vote, helping them get citizenship, helping them navigate, like I said, the educational system. And parents are very appreciative and grateful. They say, oh, thank you so much. In fact, I've had parents come back to me in the past and just thank us because your children were doing so well. Either they graduated college or went to college or have a great job and they come back and they say, you know, thank you so much for taking care of them. Um, You know, and at that time, they probably didn't realize how important it was that their child had a good foundation to go on. And, And two, we, our model here at Chinatown Learning Center is once you're a student of Chinatown Learning Center, you're always a student. And we always tell the parents they can always come back. We've taken, we've helped kids um, navigate the educational system by helping them maybe pick out their, their school, their high school. I've taken a few kids to go look at colleges. So it just goes on and on. And, and then a lot of times if they need internships, um, if I don't have something for them, I can refer to them. And, and it's just really nice to have those connections with everyone. So we all help each other, all the different groups in Chinatown, we help each other. You know, if, if we can't help you here, here's somebody that can. I think that's really important for any community to survive, just that support all the way around. Thank you so much. Is there anything that you have going on that people can support? I want people to maybe start coming back to Chinatown. The businesses really need your help. You can get takeout orders. There's a lot of different ways you can support. There's so many different organizations that are in our community that you can support. And then when we do have events, come out and and join us. And then too, if you have questions, you know, feel free to contact any of us in the community and we'll we'll help navigate and hopefully help our community grow even more. It's, It's grown a lot and more people are recognizing that it's not just a place with restaurants. We're a community of families, of businesses, of people who have been here forever. To learn more about Ms. Carol Wong and the Chinatown Learning Center or any of our other many endeavors in leading the Chinatown community forward, you can find a full story on our website, kywnewsradio.com. Just look for Philly Rising. Thanks for joining us on Bridging Philly, brought to you by Gift of Life Donor Program. Organ donors save lives. Be sure to connect with us on Twitter at Bridging Philly and with me at Raquel on Air. And of course, please subscribe to the podcast. For Antoinette Lee, Sharaday Howard, and our producer, Arian Fulcher, I'm Raquel Williams. Be well.